Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke, and by popular demand, I have the rip-roaring keynote speaker, best-selling author, and TV presenter, Jeff Birch. Jeff, Hello. welcome back. Hello, well, I'm here. <laughs> I was hoping for a bit more pizzazz. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've put my neurotic hat on for today's subject, so I'm, Excellent. I'm doing my cupboard hiding today. <laughs> Jeff's got an interesting background. His father invented something called transactional analysis. <laughs> then he Eric Burns stole it from yeah. him. Tell me a little bit about your dad, first of all, because I suspect he was a bit of a character. He was the darkest depressive I've ever met, in a cheerful way. He had this sort of black view of the world. Let's, let me just give you a bit of his background. He incredibly, incredibly high-level, arrogant, Viennese society superstar psychoanalyst until the Nazis appeared. He went to university with basically a German aristocracy who later became senior officers in the army. And he was at the opera one night with one of his pals, sort of Otto von, commander-in-chief of the whatever it is. And... uh, His surname was Rosenhauer, by the way, my dad's name. Don't ask me how I got mine. And they called him Rosie for short. And this German officer leant across during the Mouse or something and said, by the way, Rosie, I wouldn't go home. The Gestapo are going to arrest you tonight. So he took his young daughter, who's my half-sister, who's also a psychiatrist and an even bigger depressive than my dad was, (laughs) and his first wife, who wasn't my mum, and they appeared in England in top hat and tails. That's how they appeared. Well, the English corporal with a fag hanging out of his mouth couldn't spell his name, so called him Manic, which was a bit of a coincidence. This is quite <laughs> funny because that was his his forename was Manic. So they said, "Oh, well, right, I can't be asked to write Rose. I can't spell it." Then declared him an illegal alien and locked him up on the Isle of Man. And I could never tell during my life whether he hated the Germans or the English more. and he said he remembered sitting on a box once discussing with a nuclear physicist one of the most important philosophers in the world and the conductor of the berlin philharmonic how that they would share a herring that they'd caught between them (laughs) and uh he was rescued by the quakers who who were the ones that managed to so he was put into the custody of the Quakers, who gave him a job as a boot boy in a hotel. <laughs> so by the time he'd finished that, he came out in the evilest of bad moods, which didn't leave him to the end of his life, really. <laughs> he was an extremely skillful psychoanalyst, psychiatrist, but he would refer to his patients as the loonies. So... I'd see him with a, oh, yes, yes, my dear, you want to murder your children? This is quite normal. Oh, dear, oh, dear, here we have, our hour is up. Mm-mm-mm. Goodbye, dear lady, bye-bye, bye-bye. And he'd shut the front door and go, bloody loonies. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as a child, if ever I had anxiety or anything like that, which kids have, I'd say, Dad, I can't sleep, I'm having that. Don't drive me nuts. I work with bloody loonies all day and you want to drive me nuts now, you know. So, But you see, if you have a dad, like I'm an old hell's angel. So I brought my kids up. They, by the time of three, they could spot every make of motorbike. But I was brought up by a Viennese psychoanalyst, psychiatrist. He, you know, he was a medical doctor as well. So by the time I was three, I could spot a bedwetter, somebody with an Oedipus complex. I could see them. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to ask what you're seeing across the other side of the screen. Yeah, well, the problem is, you know, I used to point this before I discovered subtlety. I used to point this out to my teachers that they'd probably got erectile dysfunction and things like that, <laughs> which come in from a five year old's a bit of a stinger, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Were any of your teachers bedwetters? Yeah, well, hundreds of them. Let's bring this uh, to order then. So. Today, we're talking about TA transaction analysis. Yeah. Uh, do you mind giving the listeners a quick introduction to what TA is all about? Well, I think TA is absolutely brilliant. Now, 
let me give a set, just, just, just to start us off. When we're born, before we have language, which is probably in my case until I was about nine, but most people 18 months old or something, we do not. We have emotions and feelings and sadness and pain and everything else, but don't have any words. So the old man had a patient who was forcefully breastfed when he was about six months old, whether he liked it or not. And he had a big fat mum. So he had this feeling of suffocation, forced suffocation. So every time he, he ate, he used to think he was going to die and couldn't explain it because he couldn't have words for it. And that puts in us, if you like, our experiences, even before we have language. Some people say that we're programmed for life before we're three years old, which is a bit scary. I'm not sure about that. But we have in us a child. A child, our emotion of a child, and, and it's not fair. Well, I don't like spiders. I'm not hungry. Nah, I don't want it. We have that voice that was in us, our original basic program, which is how we behaved as kids. But yeah. we also hear the voice of this great thumping lout of a thing called a parent who says things like, you'll put somebody's eye out with that thing. I have caught myself doing it to my kids. You'll put somebody's eye out with that thing. I've never seen anybody's eye ever be put out. But still, you'll put somebody's eye out with that thing. Have you ever seen a bus on time? I never have. People should work harder. Hard work never killed anybody. It's these lovely statements. And because parents are bigger than us and can hit us, and we depend on them for our grub, we take what they say as gospel. And that goes into our basic program. So... In our head, we have a voice, it's not fair. Why did this happen to me? I'm not angry, I've shat myself. Those are our child voices. And then we have this bit of saying, if you sat nearer to the lavatory, you wouldn't shit yourself. You know? So, so you, have these, you have these little voices going in your head and eventually we grow up and there's a middle bit of us that says, it's unreasonable to expect me to do that because I can't work that hard or how do you feel we could move this forward? It says normal things that don't relate to a phrase or thing that we've learned and aren't a whiny voice from our childhood. And that is called the adult. So it's parent, adult, child. There's nothing wrong. But if you watch two old ladies at a bus stop, they will talk parent to parent. So I'll see the bus is late again. Have you ever seen a bus on time? No, I haven't. I think they should work harder to make these buses. The trouble is these buses are all driven by immigrants. They are, and they don't work as hard as people used to. So this is a, this is a conversation. It's like a play conversation, but it is perfectly happy because if you drew the lines between the P and P, it's a nice parallel conversation. Conflict happens when one person replies in the wrong voice. So it's, well, I'll see the buses late again. And you reply in an adult way and say, do you know, I've never been at this bus stop before, so I wasn't expecting one thing or the other, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Then the person's pissed off with you because you're not going to play with them. But they can talk parent to child. That works well, as long as the child replies in a child voice. I don't think these buses ever run on time. Nah, it's not fair, is it? <laughs> See? So I'm going to, no, it isn't fair. So they're talking down to me and I'm talking up to them. Like the government in this current crisis. Stay at home, save lives. Yes, I will. I'll stay at home and save lives. But the minute you reply at an adult and say, well, how does it save lives with me staying at home? Shut up. How dare you? Don't talk back to me. You know, it's like, it's a perfectly reasonable question and I'm perfectly prepared to accept a reasonable explanation. So if you want to start a fight with your missus, <laughs> she says, have you seen my handbag? That's an adult question. Have you seen my handbag? An adult reply would be, no, I haven't seen your handbag. But because... I think she's an idiot and want to treat her like a child and don't mind having crockery thrown at my head. 
I will reply, it's probably where you left it. You ought to look after your things. See? Woo. That's a good way of starting a fight. You know. So (laughs) TA is... World War Three in two sentences each. Yeah. She said, I said, she said, World War Three. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So transactional analysis is about analysing this transaction between two people listening to people's conversation, it starts to tell you a lot about their personality. And for clarification, a transaction is a unit of communication. That's right. Even if it is bouncing a cup off my head. That is a... <laughs> see, bouncing cup off husband's head is adult to child, probably. Even though it's a dangerous adult and an extremely frightened child, it's, that's, a, that's a transaction. And I go, ow! Why did you do that? See, that's a child voice. Because she would say, because you're being a twat. That is a parent to child, you see. That's not quite the nurturing parent, though, is it? No, 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 no. That's the other thing. Of course, you do have bad parents. I'm a bad parent. I've been working on it for years. You have to be. You, you can be a <laughs> good parent. It, it, none of these people are good or bad. But some people get themselves in the most terrible messes. I mean, alcoholism and all of that. and. The psychologist Eric Byrne wrote a most wonderful book, which we both enjoyed, called The Games People Play. And using transactional analysis, he sets out how we play the game of life. Quite often, the loser ends up dying. Um, so it's a pretty serious, it's a pretty serious game, yeah. <laughs> so in terms of how people's communication breaks down. We've obviously got those unequal transactions, so parent to child, adult to parent, and so on. How do you move into the positive end of being fully integrated and being fully present? Let's start with the good bits first. Well, again, I think it can be a distraction, really, because I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot adult. I do try to It does bother people when I ask for clarifications and stuff of what they're saying. If you can see how it's going, if you can see how it's going, it's very important to converse with people by asking questions, to try and clarify where they are with that. And you need to be careful that you don't cross the transaction. You don't actually, if they make a childish appeal to you, And they're appealing to your parents. Some people are looking for guidance and advice in a parent reassuring way. And again, if you look at the current situation with the the government, we have taken the part of child and we expect them to behave like parents. Now they're appearing to be very frightened parents who don't know what the hell they're doing. We start to lose confidence in them. When really, they should have started off with having an adult-to-adult conversation, whereupon we could have negotiated a reasonable, acceptable route with this, where we would have understood the problems. I mean, one of the things that parents do is they hide from their children the true danger of the situation that they're in. That's a classic kind of parent trick. Don't worry, we're going to be all right. When they know damn well we're not going to be all right. Because you'd never tell a child that there's a bloody great poisonous snake in the wardrobe. I've tried telling my kids that, and they used to get really upset. <laughs> Especially when they found there wasn't a huge poisonous snake in the wardrobe. So, you know, that's the thing. Back to the question then. How do we make sure that we are fully present and that we are operating from the right ego state? How do we recognise when we're moving out of it as well, to make sure that we don't end up creating that needless conflict? Oh, that's really difficult, that. I mean, that's impossible. (laughs) It's going to be an easy question. No, no, I mean, I'm quite happy to be whiny child. There's a book that I personally dislike. I don't want to, I do not want to be uh, sued, so I'm being very careful. The, The Chimp Paradox, right? Now, this guy has come up with this idea that unlike transactional analysis, it's kind of pinching the ideas of transactional analysis and then turning it into something I just do not recognize. What he said was, (laughs) what he said was, he said, there's three bits of you, just like TA, 
But there's this bit called the computer. There's the chimp and the grown-up or the adult or whatever, something like that. Now, the chimp is this wild, uh, this wild, fierce, uncontrollable animal. It's not the child anymore. It's this bloody thing called the chimp. The computer enacts whatever it's commanded. So if the chimp's in charge, the computer will do something. And if the adult is in charge, then the computer does something else or the grown-up or whatever he calls it. He means, I don't know whether he means parent in that. So he says, if somebody cuts you up in a car, pulls out in front of you, and a chimp sees this because the chimp's got a huge willy and wants to prove that it's a masculine, bitey chimp, the chimp, if the chimp communicates with the computer, the computer turns the body to put its foot down on the accelerator, hand on the horn, and, you know, but if we can discipline ourselves and let this grown-up take over, the guy pulls out, the grown-up says, oh, this poor unfortunate bloke in the speeding car obviously has places to go, people to see. He didn't see me. I'm sure he didn't intend to offend me. I'll put my foot gently on the brake. And if you keep doing that, then you program the computer to respond more readily to the grown-up, you see. But as a biker... And somebody pulls out in front of me, I would hand the throttle to the chimp, chase the bloke for seven miles, and then smear shit on his windscreen, you think. <laughs> now, you might, feel, <laughs> you might feel that's unreasonable. But I say to the, the chimp paradox bloke, I have never read such a buttoned-up book. It's for a bloke who wears cycle shorts in his own house. It's a... He is a PE teacher, or he calls himself a sports coach. And they have that same. PE teachers are the people that are kind of in there with the lads until at the school disco you call him Ken, and then he turns nasty. It's all very well. Now, what the guy is missing is the chimp is not really a chimp. It's the child. Now, children are funny. We like children. Children are funny. They're creative, they're amusing, they're humorous, they're playful. They're curious. And curious, yeah. So you don't crush your child into a little box because you don't want to smear shit on people's windscreens. <laughs> you let him out, go on, let the chimp go, let it go. That's, the chimp is the, is the one that goes, woohoo, yeah, ha, 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 up yours, go on, swivel on this, so, you know, whatever. <laughs> And then it makes you laugh. You don't feel bad about it. If you let your child go, it, if you let your child go and it disgraces you and you feel guilty and horrible, that's bad. But if you let your child go and it makes you laugh, it makes you think back well, <laughs> that a bloke drove through a hedge trying to avoid you. It makes you chuckle a bit. Then go to it. There's no chimp. It's a child. Our child needs to be looked after. It's our creative spirit. You can be adult too often. They need the three bits of you need to work together, really. The thing that scares me about all of this thing is that Eric Byrne, the guy who wrote this, and my dad, scarily enough, I think here's the thing my dad genuinely knew what he was doing, although he pretended he didn't. He would wave things off. I don't know. I don't know. And I say, I'd say things to him, or didn't Nietzsche say, ah, oh, Nietzsche was an idiot. No, I don't know. <laughs> but then you realize that it's like lifting up a rock, and that you see all sorts of horrible things underneath it. Most sensible people would quietly put the rock down and forget they ever saw them. And the old man was very good at lifting people's rocks. I think he was tormented <laughs> by all the dreadful things that he saw. And it's the same with me a bit as well. You have this kind of constant, is it cynicism? But fear of what people are capable of. And his interpretation of life used to make me laugh. Eric Byrne did the same, but the old man used to do the most beautiful explanation of Little Red Riding Hood. <laughs> Go on, then. Well, he used to say, so, I typed up here, so, Jeffrey, why are you reading? I said, Little Red Riding Hood, Daddy. Oh, my God, what a terrible story. Oh, gee, oh, dear, that poor wolf. Hey, poor wolf. Oh, my God. <laughs> the wolf 
Hmm, why? All right. How old is Little Red Riding Hood then? I said, I don't know. Twelve? Ah, on the on the on the edge of being a woman here? Well, yeah. So how old is your mother? Oh, I don't know her mother well. I don't know. She's what, 35? 35? Yeah. Okay, 30, 35, something like that. 30, 30, 30. A young woman, full of energy. You know, what does she want? Why does she want to get Little Red Riding Hood out of the house? What is she up to? You know? <laughs> I say, well, yeah. So she's sending her through the wood where she knows there's a wolf. Take your food to your granny. Watch out for wolves. You know? Gee, son. You know, she sends her alone into the wood with this. What sort of mother is this? So the wolf meets Little Red Riding Hood in the way. So Little Red Riding Hood doesn't go, holy shit, this is a wolf. And well, she says, oh, hi, wolf. She's, she's playing with this wolf. And the wolf goes, hey, what have you got there? He says, I'm, I'm taking a hamper of goodies to my granny. So the wolf says, oh, your granny, where does your granny live? What? Why doesn't she say, hey, this bastard's going to eat my granny? You know? <laughs> Why isn't it? She tells him, the granny, where the granny is. So, Let's discuss the granny now. How old is granny? I don't know, 45, 50? And she spends all day in bed? We know women of 45 that spend all day in bed, do we not? Does she drink? Is granny drinking? What is she? Why is she in bed? I don't know. She's in bed. <laughs> so little Red Riding Hood comes and she doesn't recognize that now granny is the wolf. Do you think? Do you think? Do you believe that to be true? Yeah. So she gets into bed. So this, this girl of 12 or 13 is in bed with the wolf. And then she starts. Oh, what big eyes you've got. Have you ever met a woman like that? What big eyes you've got. <laughs> what big ears you've got. The wolf is going, hey, she's coming on to me, this kid. What big teeth. And in the end, the wolf can't, and, and then the wolf makes his one. How many times have we met women like that? Hello, big boy. And then when you make the move, she screams for help. She goes and gets her damn boyfriend, the bloody woodman, to come and chop your stomach open. How many times do you see that happen in a bar? This girl comes up and nuzzles up to you, and then her great tattooed boyfriend, Barry, comes and beats the shit out of you, you know? <laughs> I feel sorry for the wolf. <laughs> okay so let's take the conversation a little bit deeper then let's get beyond little red riding hood and let's put it into the context of a sales environment how do you sell using ta well i first of all it's a dodgy thing to do to mess with people's heads but i also feel that person has what you would call an ego ideal. So rather than how you would sell is how you would avoid annoying or winding up or destroying the personal impression that a person has of their own self-worth, their own value. So you wouldn't want to cross transactions with them. You'd want to spot, are they trying to talk to you Adult to child, are they treating you like a kid? Are they just talking to you adult to adult? The ability to use questions, the ability to use things that make them feel happier in your company are all good ways of improving, improving the sale. I mean, again, I worked with a buyer many years ago, and he had a great big sailing ship on the wall behind him. And I said, oh, big sailing ship, because I was stupid and didn't realize what was coming. Big sailing ship. And he said, yeah. I said, do you like sailing? Because I like sailing. Do you like sailing? He said, no. He said, I just put it there to remind me how much time gets wasted. Now get to the point, you see. <laughs> and he'd obviously set this as a little trap for any unsuspecting salesman. And I, I, I always felt that people like that needed firing. Because a, a buyer is really, the buyer's job really is to buy the best thing for the business. And if you really wanted to sell properly, it should be an adult-to-adult conversation. I'm always very disturbed by manly men, you know, the pissing contest people, you know, the firm handshake. And do you play golf? See, there's another one. I don't play golf. 
I don't know if you do or not. I, when I, was at, I have been known to butcher a course. Have you? Oh, when I was at, yeah, I said to somebody once, how do I improve my long game? And he said, just hit the ball and run backwards. It's the only hope, you know. <laughs> and uh, and I, uh, when I was a kid, I was a hooligan. I always tell people I was a hooligan as a kid. Nobody laughs because they think I'm exaggerating, but I was. And usually at a, at a dance, you know, when, when our motorbike gang met the other motorbike gang at a dance, you knew it was going to kick off. Why was it going to happen? It would be somebody come up to you and go, are you looking at my bird? The moment he said, are you looking, you needed to hit him because it was coming, you know. Another famous line was, you killed my brother. I remember one person introducing himself as, you see. <laughs> and all of those would result in somebody being thrown out through a window. That has now been interpret that has now turned into senior managers saying to me do you play golf jeff <laughs> play it's the same it's that same tone of voice do you play golf jeff you know and it's saying because if you do i think i could whoop your ass that's what they're kind of saying it's this kind of do you play golf jeff and then the next thing what's your handicap or whatever it is or what do you drive and when i was first in sales i had a some ghastly car and the sales manager had the same model. The guy I was selling to, I mean, had the same model. And we had to go out in the car park. And mine was an HL, but his was an HLS. And because it was, he was happy to do business with me. He didn't want to believe that somehow some scabby little salesman had got the same or even better than he had. You mm -hmm. know, it's that's why I like doing business with women. They don't quite have the same level of stupidity as men. <laughs> what I often see in a sales interaction is where the salesperson puts the customer on a pedestal. So they automatically push the buyer into a parent-child conversation and they give away their power. And it, it fascinates me how often this happens. And it flabbergasts me why people don't understand the critical nature or the critical importance of having an adult-to-adult -adult conversation. I do a story, it's in one of my books, of called Selling a Tank to Genghis Khan. <laughs> and it comes from me trying to train telephone salespeople. And in the end, what we did was that because people phone and then put the phone down because they're so scared, we started sellotaping the receiver to their hand. You know, <laughs> excuse me, do you want? No. Do they... They can't put the phone down. It's stuck. So they, they just have to dip and dial, dip and dial. And in the end, when these people were driven to nervous breakdowns, they would say to me, oh, I can't sell double glazing. Why not? Nobody wants it. So I said, well, imagine people had a product they really wanted then. Uh, could you sell that? Yay. Uh, a tank, a whopping great battle tank. Just a list of prospects and a huge tank. Who would we set? Not painters and deck. Oh, here we are. Bloodthirsty dictators. General Galtieri, Attila the Hun, Mussolini, Genghis Khan. Now, Genghis Khan is a 13th century warlord. What he wouldn't give for a battle tank, right? So you ring him up on his mobile because he's in the 13th century, isn't he? Khan, what do you want? What do you say to him? See? What do you say? And everybody, how do you want a tank? What? No, he wants death and destruction, slaughter on a rivers of blood, mountains of skulls. That's what he wants. But the, but the whole point is, in the end, I'm not going to do the whole thing, but you end up with an appointment with Khan. Now, you have a product that's very useful to him. I mean, it would be unbelievable if he had a tank, which is the same to every salesperson watching this who has technology to sell. But he is trying to sell that technology, that software package, accounting software, new air conditioning, whatever it is. But he's got to try and sell it to a bloodthirsty dictator, which <laughs> is the description of most chief executives anywhere. Their intimidating persona ends up with, in the story of me selling Genghis, Genghis ends up taking charge of the sale. 
He's out of control. He's all over the tank. He's opening and shutting doors. He's asking questions. You are now no longer in control of the sale. And that's the trick to this. If you're selling to people who intimidate you, you've got to hold your nerve and you have to stay in control. You do that with questions and you do that with having a mental resolve that you will pace this sale at the speed you intended to, you know? All right, okay, sit down. So you're the chap selling this software package. Before we get into this, what's it going to cost me? Well, the costs are difficult because we cut. Well, no, 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 it's not difficult. What's it cost? What it cost? This bloody software package. I mean, I'm not going to spend the whole afternoon talking to you some bollocks about payroll and everything else and we can't afford it. What's it cost? Well, it were said at about four, four thousand. Four thousand pounds? Well, yes, but you could, you know, in the end, you are in territory that you'd not even planned to be in. And the person's just taking the piss, basically. You need to say, how, well, hold on. Obviously, price is going to be discussed. But before I can get on to price, we have to talk about your needs. And you have to hold that nerve. And here's another lovely thing, Marcus, is that we need status to be able to conduct your TA in a way and not be treated like a child, a chimp, or just something stuck to his shoe. We need status. Now, a lot of people, a lot of people say, well, selling is about ask questions. You should ask more questions than you talk and all this. We got one mouth and two ears. Well, if we had enough ears to give us a clue, our head would look like one of those cheap swimming hats with ears all over it, you know. But questions give us information. That's simple. You ask questions to get information. But there's something much more important status. People who ask questions are more important than people who don't ask questions. When I was at school and I was watching the hockey team out the window and that bloke was going, ah, the main crop of the Argentinius pampas is manioc, manioc and cacao, cattle ranching across the... What's the main cackle? What? Jesus Christ. He's asking questions. The minute he does, attention. So when you're doing that demonstration and the bloke's drifting away and thinking about the young secretary next door or what he's going to have for his dinner or the fact his athlete's foot's playing up, if you suddenly say, what does that mean to you, Mr. Smith? It's a bang. You've got him back. When that copper stops you, they go, how fast will you go in then, Sonny? It's a question. People in superior positions ask questions. And if you're a questioner, you can raise your status, even as a lowly salesperson. And the next thing it does is give you control. I know it's old hat questions, but it is really important. On the subject of questions, what I've observed is that Average and weak salespeople ask questions to gather information. The better ones ask questions to gain understanding. But the very best ask questions to help deliver insight. And they open the prospect's mind to what's possible, why change is necessary, and they rip the scales from their buyer's eyes. And in order to do that, you need to come from a position where you feel comfortable in your own skin. And I think a lot of what you've been talking about here is a lot of salespeople, because they put the bar on a pedestal, have a tendency to operate very much from that child ego state. And they don't see themselves conceptually as having equal business stature. Certainly in, in my experience, unless you see yourself as having equal stature with your prospect, then you'll invariably end up in a bad place. Because if you see yourself as being superior, they'll pick up on it and they will reflect back what you're projecting out. And if you see yourself as somehow subservient, you're also going to find yourself in a bad place. So in terms of the internal dialogue that you run with yourself, because the voices in your head don't necessarily denote that you've gone crazy, but that internal voice, that scripting, 
I'd like to explore that a little bit further because I know you have some opinions on scripting as well. Well, I think you have a, well, that's dodgy stuff. I mean, if you listen to Eric Byrne or my dad, they would have said you have a script for life. If you talk to Eric Byrne or the old man, he would tell you how you're going to die. He will tell you exactly how you're going to die. And you come on, I'll be stupid. What happens if a piano falls on me? And you go, yeah. And you're the sort of person that walks about not looking up. Because you're depressed, you look down all the time. That's how pianos fall on people, you know. A normal person would have seen a piano come in miles away. It is actually people who live have lived riskier lives have certain ways of dying. So, you know, people who value their life less will, will so on. And I mean, it, it, this script will take you to your grave. Now, there are loser scripts. You know, those are scripts that are, why did this always happen to me? One, one of my favorite things about this, I love this, because I have a friend who is no longer a friend. We had a terrible fallout. Because people who believe in TA believe, well, Eric Burns suggested that we all wear T-shirts with a slogan on it. And that tells you about who you are. The Hell's Angel has one that says, fuck you, written on it. The, the drug addict, the street hooligan, fuck you. Just really don't care about me. I don't care if I die. I don't care if you die. I have no value of your life or my life. They're not okay. The state you have to be in is I'm okay, you're okay. That's what you're talking about. It's okay, okay. Like the superior person says, I'm okay, you're not okay. So that's bad. The failure says, I'm not okay, you're okay. And the best thing is this level thing of okay, okay. We feel okay about ourselves. That's, we're content. My wife really annoyed me the other day because she looked at me and said, you're a ghastly old man. <laughs> she said, but you know, you're comfortable in your own skin. For all your misery, for all your dreadful things, you're comfortable in your own skin. And I think sometimes that's what unsettles people about you. But these T-shirts we wear, the one that says, fuck you. And then Eric Burns said, sometimes they have another message on the back. You know, a second, a kicker, he called it. So you have a woman in a bar that says, looking for a husband. And you chat her up. Then she turns around on, on the back of her T-shirt. It says, but it isn't you, you know. <laughs> And another one says, alcoholic. How many people walk around with T-shirts saying how proud they are to drink too much? You know, it's beer time. It's thing. But then on the back, there's a little sad note that says, but remember, it's an illness, you know? <laughs> alcoholic and proud, but remember, it's an illness. But the one that gets me, Eric Burns said, there's this club. Watch out for anybody watching this. Watch out for these people. You, once you start spotting them, you won't miss them. They go to this club. They're mostly blokes. And they go to this room. It's just bare brick walls and a single light bulb. And they sit on old parish hall chairs. And their T-shirt says, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Right. <clears throat> so when you say to them, hey, Barry, you're a bit down. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, enough about me. How are you getting on? <laughs> but what are you upset about? Oh, I don't know. It's, uh... Bit of a struggle at work, but that's because they have to join this club and their membership says, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. <laughs> but if they tell you the trouble they've seen, then you do know the trouble they've seen and they can't wear the T-shirt anymore. <laughs> See? So you get these miserable bastards that go around being miserable, but then don't want to talk about it, you know? Because they can't wear their T-shirt that says, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And then they take it in turns to see who's seen the most trouble, but they don't talk about it, you know. So the T-shirt, the script of our life is, but some people have winner scripts. Some, the kid who's always picked to be captain of football, prefect, the teacher loves his homework. When they've been set to do a thing for the Henry VIII, him and his dad have built a life-size model of the Tower of London. So he's featured in the magazine. Birch has come in with a thing made of egg boxes and taken a thrashing off the headmaster for being a lazy bastard, you know. There's always this thing, winner script, loser script. Now, you'd think it'd be good to have a winner script, and it isn't bad. You end up with a nice home, trophy wife, 
driving a beautiful car, managing director, but you're a passenger on that train. If you've got to lose a script, you're a passenger that will carry you to a sad death in a lousy bedsit. If you've got to win a script, you'll carry you to a death where you sit in a four-poster bed in your mansion surrounded by your 26 adoring children. But it wasn't your life. It was a life that the script predicted for you. And the real state that people need to get into is script-free. It's almost like the Buddhist nirvana. It's where you are almost seeing your life as a chessboard. In your case, it's the sales thing, where you can sit back and dispassionately move the pieces on that board. So I'm going to meet this guy. I want to check for 50,000 quid for what I'm selling. I can sit outside my head and see those pieces move and respond. And then go home and have a McDonald's and murder one of the children's amptors and ride, ride my motorbike. But the, the thing is, it, it's not scripted anymore. It becomes, you become self-determining. It's such a wonderful thing to be able to achieve. It certainly is. And again, I think what, again, I've observed, and it's not true for everybody, but for many, is that we are creatures of programming and habit. We're locked into our beliefs and our programs. And when we realize that they are running us, then that is the moment where free will exists and where we can uh, get out of that and we can step out of that program and then determine our own direction, our, our own velocity. But very few people ever do because they find themselves, you know, no one from our family has ever, I could never do this, that and the other. I'm only, I'm just that type of dialogue, which is very constraining, very restricted. What I'm fascinated by is how people become aware that they are being constrained by that scripting. What do they need to do in order to realize that they've abdicated free will for this, this program? It's like the black, ah, you're going to swallow the red bill or, pill or the blue pill. It's like the bloody matrix, is it? <laughs> You know, um, and do you really want to live script free? If you've had a winner's script that is providing you with your nice detached house and your your Jag F pace and whatnot, do you really want to stand out from that? I, I, I always used to wonder with the old man that some of his patients would suddenly realize they were in a loveless marriage and bin it. And you think, well, I'm not sure that was what you really, I'm not sure that was a good move, that. <laughs> if you look at the Matrix, they all end up wearing itchy underwear and living in a submarine, you know, and you think, well, I'm not sure you actually wanted to do that, did you? <laughs> you know, I think, I think being script-free can sometimes be a bit alarming. You know, I, 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 I have a, a small person that lives in this house, and he has a sleep problem. And, that, and his sleep problem is not that he can't sleep. But it's because he hates being awake when everyone else is asleep. And he doesn't like this awareness when everybody is unaware. And there is a risk of giving up sort of blissful unawareness. I, I, I am a vegetarian, and I've got a Spanish friend. They had a pet pig called Jose. <laughs> and Jose got, oh, I mean, it was treated like a child. It came when they called it. It was this, that, and the other. And then one day they had a festival and all the village came up the hill and they were all playing lovely Spanish music. And then somebody clubbed Jose to death and they ate him. And I said, bloody hell, <laughs> what was that about? And they said, well, what a way to go. Jose didn't know the festival was the festival of let's club the pig. <laughs> and they said, your pigs? No, poor bastards. They're all in concrete bloody sheds and they're waiting to die. You know, Jose, Jose had a happy life. You know, he had no anticipation of getting whacked on the head and eaten. And I think, again, if you've got a winner's script, perhaps stick with it. You never know when you're going to get clubbed and eaten, but it doesn't really matter because <laughs> no, you had no idea that it was coming. I think if you can step out of that, 
you start to see the wrinkles. You start to see in other people's behavior things that are not as pretty as you thought they were. The old man's joke was that two psychiatrists in the corridor, one said good morning and the other one thought to himself, what did he mean by that? (laughs) (laughs) A model that I found very helpful, or two models I found very helpful that have come out of TA are the drama triangle and the winner's triangle. And the drama triangle describes every broken, dysfunctional, fucked up relationship you can or will ever have beautifully, elegantly on three points of a triangle. And you have the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. And what I've realized, much to my own embarrassment, is that sometimes... the patsy, so you have a fourth fourth corner as well they're like the players in the game of alcoholic aren't they but there's there's four players in that oh i didn't know about the fourth one tell me about the patsy that's the uh barman right i mean the the the, the, there's the pat that the wife can be the persecute can swap from persecutor to rescuer as well i discovered this much to my embarrassment that i managed to occupy all three points of the triangle and have a row with my wife without involving her. <laughs> so, um, one day, uh, one Friday night, she said, I'm going to decorate the living room tomorrow. So in my family, DIY stands for don't involve yourself. And so I kissed her goodnight, turned over and went to sleep. And I, I had a busy week. I'd done four full days of training. And it's, it, you know, after four, four days of training, you're knackered. And my plan was basically sit in bed, eat chocolate, watch the cookery programs and sleep and drink beer. Anyway, around 11.36, a little voice in my head said, oh, I wonder if she needs help. So I went downstairs and said, do you need any help? And my wife responded, well, only if you want to. Now, in my marriage, I thought what that meant was, yes, off I go. So I went to the, uh, the garage and I got my bucket and brushes. And I, on my way back, Um, a little voice in my head said, how the fuck did this happen? How did she rope me into this? I've had a hard week. The plan was to lie in bed and veg out. I'll show her. So there I am ripping off little pieces of wallpaper. And there's a cloud with thunder and lightning and rain over my head. And after about eight or nine minutes, she looks across and said, sweetheart, you, you don't seem to be fully engaged in this activity. There's something wrong. And I went straight back into the victim mode. Well, you know, I had a hard week. And she said, you know, I know you've had a hard week. I've hardly seen you, and I thought it would just be a nice way to spend some time together. When I said only if you want to, I meant only if you want to. So at that point, I felt like my willy was about the size of my little finger. In fact, it's prob- I was probably sm- uh, longer. And I just felt such an ass. And I learned at that point that you don't even need to engage someone else to occupy the drama triangle. And that's where ego thrives on drama. So we see this everywhere. Wherever we look, our media just feeds it to us. The news, reality TV. I mean, when was the last time you watched an episode of the news and said, you know, fuck me, that was amazing. I feel so uplifted. I can't wait for the next episode. I like a bit of cat kicking anger, though. You know, that's <laughs> the other thing. I enjoy that. I mean, I don't want to live in a land of happiness and whatever it is. No. You see, it, say the game of alcoholic that he talks about. You see, yeah, the alcoholic is the player. He's the one. He's got to win. See, in sales and in psychology and everything else, the classic game played is the game of yes, but. So my dad would say, you know, and so how are you? You know, oh, I'm in a in a. My husband beats me up. Oh, dear, dear, dear. So why don't you leave him? Oh, I love him. So why don't you, why don't you, why don't you talk to him about his violence? Yes, but he punched me in the face. So then why don't you get a friend to speak? Yeah, but then he beat me up to speak. To him. Well, then, so the yes, but, yes, but, yes, but, you see. And it's the same. When you offer solutions to people you're selling to, yes, but. Yes, but that's occupying the rescuer position. Yeah, on the so ground, the old, which is helping without boundaries or permission. So the old man used to shoot their fox by them going, "Oh, doctor, 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 my husband beats me up." So, oh dear. 
So what do you plan to do about this? So what is your plan? What options do you have? Well, I could leave him, I suppose, but don't you love him? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you can do this in a sale. If you want to play a game to get your head going in the right direction, try this. Try yes and. Say yes. When somebody says something to you that's a bloody stupid idea, instead of going, yeah, but go yes and. So, like, I think we all we ought to get a children's party and give them brandy. They go, yes, but one thing I want is 20 pissed children. We go, yes. And for parents who didn't want their children drinking alcohol, we could provide soft drinks. So it's actually, yes-anding is a really good way of dealing with people who are yes-butting or making stupid suggestions. Because you need, here's another thing, you do need to point out to customers that they're stupid, and that is very dangerous. I went in with a sales engineer once, <laughs> and we were trying to flog this compressor and uh, hit this point was an enthusiast. Artists on compressors, Jeff, and I am... Um, I was on the engineering floor for many years, and then they promoted me to the position of senior salesman. Unfortunately, I don't fucking sell anything. Right. So, uh, is this the compressor? Yes, I designed it. Well, don't they vibrate? No, 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 no. Don't be stupid. Hit that. And the next thing, we're back in the street, you see. And I said, well, that was good. Conflict immediately. And he said, what was I supposed to do? Agree with him? I said, yes. He said, don't be foolish. I'm not agreeing that my compressors are designed by break. I said, let's try it. Let me do it. These are the new miniature compressors. Oh, yeah, but don't they vibrate? You're ex absolutely right. Vibration was always a problem with these miniature compressors. That is, you're brilliant. You spotted it. So that, but that is exactly why we've designed this one to have these little hydraulic supports and that cures the vibration you were so concerned about. What do you think? See? How to, cut, how to tell a customer an idiot without them noticing, you know? <laughs> so in comedy improv, the rule is yes and. You exactly. always accept what the other person throws you. And it's the same thing when you're dealing with objections or resistance. You yeah. always accept what your prospect says and then bounce it back. If you don't, then you just end up in needless and entirely avoidable conflict. I and have this thing control. about objections. I, I call them concerns. And again, what you said earlier on, which was brilliant, was it's a thing of equals. Equal business stature. Yeah, equal stature. But here's the thing. If you describe what is said as an objection, it becomes an unequal thing. It becomes a combative thing. But if me and the missus, who are sort of equal, she's the gaffer, really, <laughs> if she says, where do you want to go on holiday? And I say, oh, Mallorca would be nice. She goes, bloody hell no. You'd spend the entire time pissing around in that boat. Now, is that an objection? No because we kind of love each other and we live together. So what is it? It's a concern, right? Now, our customers we're equal with shouldn't be objecting, but we should listen to their concerns. And if you see it as a concern, it's a much more equally way of doing it. And you can acknowledge a concern. Say, oh, I can see you'd be pissed off with that. So what about we go to Mallorca, and I sail before breakfast, before you even wake up, then I'll bring you a lovely tray in bed and we'll spend the rest of the day together. You know, that is a concern. Well, it's more money than we wanted to spend. And then I go into my, well, was this exactly the product setting aside? But I could do this. Oh, yeah, I can understand that. You know, because we're, we're, we're together, we're partners. But I'm sure if we work together, we can sort this price issue out if this is what you're looking for. That is me working with a chum. You know, it's me working with a chum. And if you said to me, we're pals, you and me are pals, Marcus and Jeff. And you said to me, Jeff, I'm looking for a, I'm looking for a classic British motorbike. And then two weeks down the line, a mate of mine said, you don't, somebody wants a Triumph Bonneville, 72 Bonneville, do you? I go, bloody, I do. Marcus, he'd give his eye teeth for one of them. I'd be on the phone like a shot. I'm not nervous about cold calling you. I'm not frightened about i've got the bloody bike you were looking for marcus you know bloody hell i've got the bike you're looking for 
you know, if you see your customers as chums and you've got a great offer for them, wow, hey, you know, I'm not going to be scared of ringing up and bothering them. I'm going to be falling over myself. You know, I'm so excited that I've got this effing brilliant thing they're going to love. And again, it's that same switcheroo of attitude between, you know, customers either victims or enemies, or are they pals? Well, the, the model I like to work with is allies, adversaries, and accomplices. If you're their ally, you're working towards helping them achieve their intended outcome, their better future. If you're their accomplice, you're effectively allowing them to continue doing what they're currently doing, which is substandard. And if you're their adversary, then you're ending up in a conflict situation, which, again, can be perfectly well avoided. And you raised the subject of objections a moment ago. And the reality is that 90% of objections occur because the salesperson takes the prospect to them. Prospects don't generally object on their own. Salespeople, ineffective salespeople, raise needless objections in a prospect's mind, and they create that concern. The smartest ones I know come up ahead and uh, raise the objection before the prospect does in order to neutralize it. And it's a bit like a game of tennis. You bat it back over the net, and you have them handle it. This is the mistake that I think a lot of salespeople will make because they think that their job is to sell. Everyone well, hates to be sold. We I'm all crap at tennis. <laughs> well, I'm pretty crap at tennis. Here's a, here's, a little, here's a little sales game for you, and this is a good one. Marcus, why won't you buy my watch? Because I don't want your watch. Well, why not? Because I don't like a watch on my wrist, and I have no interest in buying one. Now, here's an interesting thing. There were no objections at all until I made the sales pitch to you. You oh. hadn't got any objections at all. None. You've just invented. One of the things that happens is if you paste your sale wrong or you're talking to the wrong person, people will invent objections. Yeah. People, people will invent them. So, so uh, you can reverse that. So, so what's happened is whenever somebody rejects us for something and we go, why not, they will invent a list, anything out of the air. I'm sorry, Mr. Birch, we can't give you the job. Why not? Because we think you're a twat or we don't like the color of your shirt or <laughs> we would never employ somebody with ears the size of yours. That They've just invented a whole lot because they hadn't got one on the tip of their tongue. They haven't got a real reason. You sprung the question. But if you do it the other way around, say, oh, sorry to hear that. What do I need to do to change your mind? It's a different question. You know, and all of a sudden, instead of saying, and also, here's an even funnier thing, is if people tell you they are going to buy, don't look cheery, ask them why. Mr. Birch, we decided we're going to use you to train our sales team. And say, oh, brilliant. Why did you choose me? And they start telling themselves why you're so brilliant. Mm -hmm. Well, because we've seen you before. We loved your humor. John's seen you train, and all of a sudden, they've got a sort of, what's the opposite to an objection? An unjection, you know? They're, they're building this pile of convictions. I used to, it's a little tip. People, I'd go for a job. People would send, I'd send my CV, and they'd say, oh, Mr. Birch, uh, tell us a bit about why you want to work for us. And I'd say, well, before I do, what was it on my CV that get, made, put me on the shortlist? Oh, wow, we were very impressed with your previous sales record. Oh, really? Yes, and it did seem you had a, an extremely in-depth knowledge of, of jellyfish sexing. Yeah, well, that's right, I do. I'm very interested. You know, and the, the next thing you know, I've got the job. I just know because they're telling me why I'm so brilliant for the job. Absolutely. Well, uh, one, one thing I always teach my clients when they're going for an interview is to uh, open with a question. So, uh, Jeff, tell me something. What do I need to have done in the in next 12 months? Imagine it's my annual review. What do I need to have done in the next 12 months for you to say, thank God, best decision we ever made was hiring you, Marcus? And off they go. And then they explain all those things. And they say, so assuming I can do that, is there any reason why you wouldn't hire me? And the interviews are very short, interestingly enough. The key is definitely get your prospect to do all the selling. Your yeah. prospect should handle their own objections, do the presentation, and close themselves. 
If you're doing that, then you don't have to make any effort. The best salespeople I know are intelligently lazy. What we do is the minimum amount possible in order to get the biggest outcome and best result. And the more your prospect buys and the less you try and sell, the more likely you are to end up with a happy customer. Yeah, I mean, my only add-on to that is that once you've got them, into that relationship, we usually forget to sell that little bit extra. Absolutely. Well, that's where you have the post-sale step, which is you cross-sell and up-sell and you prepare the sale two, three, four, five, and six. And uh, again, one of the things that fascinates me, this is something that really fascinates me, is why salespeople will not ask for referrals on cold calls or when they get a no. Yeah. It just strikes me as crazy. You've reached agreement that there isn't a fit, So why wouldn't you ask for a referral? I have this thing, and I've podcasted it somewhere else recently, so I won't go into it too much. When I was a a young salesman, I'm a natural. You know, fly by the seat of my pants, convince anybody to do anything sort of thing. And this old sales manager said, you drive me nuts. Not only do you promise things we can't deliver, not only do you do, you're just a bloody nuisance. And he he gave me this thing, which he called the four-stage plan. And he said, if you don't stick by that, I'll fire you. When you get in your car after every call, if you can't answer these four questions, I will fire you. The first question was, did I achieve my objective? Because I never had an objective. I used to just go piling into places to see if they wanted anything. But the the, the, the second two were very interesting. The first was, what have I learned in this call that will help me in future visits to this call? And then the second one, the third one was, what have I learned that I could use elsewhere? So in other words, I'd say, I, I, I'd remind myself, and the bloke would say, well, not yeah, okay, this is the order, or it isn't the order. And I'd say, by the way, who's building that Who's building that big warehouse on the way in? Oh, you remember the weird kid with the sticky out ears? Well, he's gone to work for, he's gone to work for international transmissions, and he's going to be running that plant in basically my job. Oh, what was his name then? You remember Barry? Oh, yeah, Barry Watson. Barry Watson, that's him. He's going to be the new MD. So when I went from that call, there would be an email saying, Dear Barry, congratulations on your new position at International Transmissions, you know, and perhaps a bottle. And then when I rang up to make an appointment, it would be a walk in the park. So, you know, everybody in the industry, if I was selling to the jellyfish sexers, they would know every jellyfish sexer in the entire world, you know. They know their own industry. They know what's happening. Did you know that? Did you know that consolidated jellyfish are going bust? I'm thinking, Christ, we, they owe us money. You know, that was a worthwhile. It doesn't, it's not just about sales. I always think that salespeople are, are your intelligence. I'm not saying that they're intelligent, but they're intelligent. They're you know, it's, like, it's, like, it's like somebody climbing out of a bombshell to see the entire city bomb flat going, Christ, look at the state of this. Perhaps we ought to have a chat to radar. You know? No. <laughs> Perhaps you should have had a chat to radar before you got bombed. And again, the salespeople are coming back. You know, what did you sell to hit today, Higgins? I, I had three orders and um, not much else, sir. Well, you're a lazy bastard. But what else did you learn? Well, I did notice there was a lot of Pearson lorries at our Pearson. That's our biggest competition. What were their lorries doing there? I want to know. You know, I've got my people out there and I'm wasting their time just selling. I want them bringing stuff back. Intelligence. You know, I was, I'm not going to go into this, but I was, I was working with a concrete company and they produced a product that was completely crap, which was produced by their boffins. The marketing department decided to call it the Wizzle Phantomatic 75300. And then the salespeople were handed this brochure, go and sell it. They got it stuck in, sold it. This thing broke down. The service engineer would appear, vanish inside, and then his, his ass, because that's all the customer ever saw, would say <laughs> to him, these things are crap. They're impossible to fix, and some idiot invented it, you see. And then the whole thing would collapse. And I said, when you have that, why don't you get research, marketing, sales, and service in the initial meeting? And they looked at me for a long, long time, and I swear this is true. They described me as a rebel. 
Excellent. Jeff, on that note, we're going to need to wrap up. I'm sure the audience is intrigued. How did you become a Hells Angel? Just by being, you know, the bottom of the barrel, really. I, I love, I've always loved motorbikes. And I say you have to be very careful with the trademark Hells Angel. I think it isn't Hells Angel Biker. We had a, a group of friends described as a club, and it's no one else is welcome in it. And I, I, it's very complicated. It's, it's, almost, it's almost a religious thing. To be a genuine Hells Angel with the Hells Angel colours is a very difficult thing to become. You have to be invited. And our club had a different name. I won't even say what it was. But we, you know, I suppose it is the Eric Byrne thing, you know, of feeling like slightly out of things. I've changed the sort of out of things to sort of overturning jukeboxes to try and overturn thinking in business. It's the same same mindset. Excellent. So... Jeff Birch, thank you very much. Um, oh, how pleasure. can people get hold Great of you? Great fun. Lovely. How can people get hold of you? Oh, jeffbirch.com or on LinkedIn. I'm always hovering around LinkedIn. I'm like the sort of weird woman that stands under a street light with a slit skirt. I hang around LinkedIn <laughs> like an old tart. And you can find me at jeffbirch.com. You can always communicate to me through there. And, and um, there's loads of this sort of stuff loaded up on there if you're if you're really masochistic yeah, <laughs> enough to want to do it, yeah. yeah. Excellent. And if you haven't read any of Jeff's books, they are definitely worth reading. One of my favourites was Resistance is Useless. And in fact, I can see it in the background. And Irresistible Persuasion. What's the other one? Self-Made, is it? Self-Made Me and The Way of the Dog. The Way of the Dog's great. Here's this one. It's about a salesman that is so crap that he decides to sell double glazing to a little old lady who lives in a gingerbread house. <laughs> and she turns him into a dog. And he learns how to sell by being a sheepdog. And he starts off with his old sales technique of rushing at the sheep barking. And they all run off like his customers used to. That's where his lesson starts, basically. The Way of the Dog by Jeff Birch. Excellent. Thank you so much. This has been hilarious as usual. And I can't wait to see what people say. Uh, I suspect there'll be a few letters of complaint uh, from a non-PC dialogue, but that's cool. So in the meantime, if you've enjoyed this, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you feel that you would be a good guest or there's someone that you know who would be a good guest, then please email me, m-c-a-u-c-h-i at sandler.com. And in the meantime, Have fun, happy selling, and go out there and make some money. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.